Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got my Bible open today to Colossians chapter 3. I'm looking at verse 15. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. That's the spirit I want to start today's show off with. I've got a very special guest, as always on Tuesdays. I start the show with uh, Rob Bluey, who is the executive uh, editor at the Daily Signal and also my Washington, D.C. correspondent. What I need to know, I get from Rob. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you today. Well, I must say your pirates uh, kind of beat up on my twins the last series. Uh, they looked okay. Hey, Bill, you know, it is uh, <laughs> a small miracle <laughs> that at fi- we're here a month into the season and the Pittsburgh Pirates are at 500 and not in last place. But, uh, yeah, uh, they took 203 on each of their visits on the road trip, including against yeah. the twins. So <laughs> we're grateful for it was, that. <laughs> it, was a, it was a little hurtful, but uh, I thought, well, I know Rob's going to be happy on Tuesday. So, anyway, congratulations. Thank you. Lots to talk about, as always. Uh, I wouldn't mind starting, uh, if you would, Rob, with some of the uh, census and redistricting. Yeah, big news coming out of the the census numbers yesterday, of course. Uh, the census every 10 years gives us uh, the figures on how many Americans are, are, are living here in the, this great country of ours, uh, 331 million. Uh, but it also tells us all about how the, the population has shifted from one state to another and what that means on reapportionment or how many representatives each state gets in Congress. And so uh, we did see some big changes, Bill, uh, and, uh, and I think that that's, uh, there's some winners and losers here. And, and for the most part, it's uh, Republicans who seem to come out on top. Uh, the, the big states that had gains are all states that uh, were won by President Trump, the states that uh, lost seats uh, were primarily uh, held by, by President Biden. And uh, that could be uh, a big factor in the 2022 elections when states go about redistricting, because Republicans could very well pick up enough seats to capture uh, the House. Uh, we already know, based on history, that a president uh, doesn't typically fare well in their, their first uh, midterm election. That's just a historical fact. Uh, there are some exceptions to that. So, I mean, it's uh, already looking like uh, President Biden might have faced a, a little bit of an uphill battle in, in terms of retaining control of the House, but it be, certainly becomes even harder. And, uh, and the big winner, uh, Texas picking up two seats, uh, so that's, um, that's not necessarily a surprise given the movement that we've seen. For the first time in American history, California lost a seat. California, of course, has uh, the most number of uh, representatives in the U.S. House currently and the most number uh, of electoral votes uh, as well. And, uh, and some other states, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, some of those Rust Belt states losing uh, losing representation. Your home state of Minnesota uh, was spared uh, any change by a mere mm-hmm. 89 votes. Uh, New York wow. uh, will lose a seat, and it came down to just 89 people um, who uh, who ended up um, you know being the determining factor there between Minnesota and and New York. So. Um, 
we will keep a close eye on this. The next uh, fight, of course, moves to the states where they will go through this process of redistricting. And, Bill, <laughs> we know from past experiences that this can drag out in court fights and other things. So we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. But it seems that the population is shifting uh, further south uh, and um, – and uh, that's uh, going to have big implications for the next decade. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, Rob, what happens when migrants come into the country? Where are they going to all end up? Are they going to be placed strategically in states that can help flip otherwise red states? Well, it, it seems that that could be the case. I mean, I, I can talk to you from personal experience. Uh, when we moved uh, from, from upstate New York uh, as, uh, as a place I grew up to Virginia, Virginia was a reliably Republican or red state. State. Uh, this was 20 years ago. I mean, in terms of electing mm-hmm. governors, in terms of who was representing the, the state in the U.S. Senate. And we saw what happened when there was a population shift. And now Virginia has basically become a blue or Democratic-led state. Uh, the Republicans haven't won the governor's mansion uh, for, a, for a number of election cycles now. Uh, both of the U.S. senators are, are Democrats. So, yes, we can see how different migratory patterns can impact uh, voting. Now, here's the one caveat I will say. If you look back at the exit polling and some of the studies that they did from the 2020 election, President Trump did fairly well among Hispanic Americans. And I think that's That's because culturally they share some of the same values that he did. And particularly among uh, Hispanic men, he did well, as he did with other other minorities. So uh, don't discount uh, Republicans or don't make any assumptions about which way they might shift politically. But certainly I think it speaks to the importance of taking the conservative message to a broader population. Uh, we need to make sure that we're, we're reaching people uh, with that message uh, beyond just the traditional conservatives and, uh, and making sure that they understand that the values we believe in are ultimately going to lead to a better life for them at the end of the day. And so uh, the work, uh, work begins in earnest now, and uh, there will be a lot of fights on our hands as these states figure out exactly what to do. But when it comes to those who uh, might be immigrating to our country, both legally or those who are here illegally, uh, you better believe that uh, there will be some big impacts in terms of of what that means for the future of this country. Mm-hmm. Rob, in 2014, the Oscar ratings went from 43.7 million viewers to 23.6 million viewers in 2020. Uh, that's a significant shift. And uh, Sunday night, they had 9.8 million viewers. So from 43.7 million in 2014 to 9.8 million Sunday night. That's a drop. Well, I... I, I... I certainly wasn't one to watch. So, I mean, I, I think either. I was like many, many Americans, Bill, like you and me, uh, who, who just had other, other things that were more important or, or we were just uh, maybe fed up with uh, the, the wokeness coming out of Hollywood. I think there are a variety of factors here. Uh, of, of course, these awards programs seem to um, be, be so focused on – uh, I, in, a, in a way, you know, we, we would make fun of these participation trophies that, that sports leagues would give out to uh, to kids and to make them feel included and, and welcome. And I think that uh, in many cases, some of these awards programs have adopted that same mentality that uh, they needed to, to check certain boxes and, and award certain individuals uh, based on, on their gender or skin color or things like that, mm-hmm. as opposed to their talent. And I think a lot of Americans are fed up with that and uh, and they just think don't see them necessarily as, as, as must-see events on television anymore. But I think that there's something bigger than that, too. I think that um, probably because of the pandemic, maybe it's sped up because of the pandemic, people are just consuming content in a much different way. And and live television, uh, you know, maybe sports excluded, is just not as, as 
you know, maybe appointment television as you would expect. I think people are also cutting the cord. They're not watching cable as much anymore. Uh, they're, you know, doing other things. Um, so I don't have a specific reason to pinpoint why the ratings are so down, but I think it's a variety of factors. I think that the American people are probably fed up with, uh, with some of the things that they're seeing coming out of Hollywood, and they're also uh, just, um, you know, in a different mindset uh, here in uh, 2021 that they were in previous years. I saw an interesting review of the Oscars by Piers Morgan, and he said, you know, that like maybe the first year they didn't have an orchestra and they didn't have uh, an MC, and there's no jokes and there's no songs and no dance. And he said there was a, a lot of people just getting up and giving their political views. It, well, that's that's another factor. I, I, um, I think that these these celebrities from Hollywood have used that as a platform to make their political beliefs known. And we, as we know, Bill, in terms of watching these, they're typically one-sided. Uh, you, you don't have a whole lot of uh, ideological diversity coming from the stage there. Uh, and sometimes they can turn into to fairly uh, lengthy lectures <laughs> that the American people probably would rather avoid. I think that they're, uh, they're interested in being entertained. Uh, they're interested in seeing the, the talent uh, rewarded for, for their good work. Uh, but they don't necessarily tune in for a political speech. Uh, they get enough of that uh, from from some of the cable news networks and certainly our politicians. So the actors and actresses can can spare us that. Um, that's uh, that's definitely something that uh, that I think is on the minds of a lot of people. Now that being said, I mean there it wasn't that necessarily all bad. I mean I know that there were some people who uh, who took the stage who talked about the importance of not canceling out other views and uh, mm-hmm. and being more open minded. I think that those are all positive messages. I just think that there are probably too few of them. And so many people in Washington, or so many people in Hollywood, that is, and Washington, have embraced cancel culture to the extreme. And uh, and I think that a lot of Americans just don't want to put up with that anymore. And they value uh, the diversity of opinion, and they would like to see more of it. Yeah, Rob, uh, update us on the the border crisis and when we're going to hear from uh, Vice President Kamala Harris on the status of what's going on. I know she's in charge. Uh, so what what do you know? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, there are there are two opinions of this. Some who say it's best that she just stay as far away from this as, as, as possible because she's not helping the the situation any with some of the statements that she's already made. And there are others who say, "Geez, President Biden has put her in charge. Why aren't we hearing more and seeing more action on on her part uh, uh, to fix this crisis?" Of course, um, you you have now first the Biden administration itself which has refused to acknowledge this is a crisis, even though it's one of the worst uh, migratory patterns we've seen in terms of the number of people who are coming north. Uh, Now you even have news outlets, uh, Politico, uh, an outlet here in Washington, D.C., which has told its reporters and editors that they're not allowed to use the word crisis when referring to the crisis at our border. So, Bill, I I, I find that these things are are all very strange. Um, They certainly had no problem uh, referring to to these things as a crisis when it was happening under President Trump. Why they're suddenly giving President Biden and uh, and Vice President Harris a pass, um, you know, seems to suggest that there may be some political bias on their part. But back to uh, the question you asked. Yeah, I think it is. A, it's an important thing uh, for our country to acknowledge. Of course, President Biden's poll numbers are underwater on this issue. Uh, it's one of the things that's dragging him down within his first 100 days. It was uh, certainly a situation they didn't anticipate or plan for. I think that they would like to keep their focus on other areas. And this has uh, diverted some of their attention. They seemed uh, like they were unprepared in, in many aspects in terms of uh, reversing a lot of the successful policies of the, the Trump administration. And now they're scrambling to try to figure out how 
how, how best to uh, accomplish it. Of course, uh, President Biden will be giving a big speech to Congress tomorrow night. I would be surprised if he makes no mention of this. I think he has to at least acknowledge it. Um, but I think it's one of those moments where uh, the American people will be listening closely to see if he's serious about uh, taking action or whether it's uh, just another moment that he's going to, to pass the buck and uh, – and, and maybe, uh, you know, turn a blind eye to what's going on. I think the, the big concern, of course, that we have is what is going to happen to all of these children who have found themselves in the United States? Uh, we're certainly not at a point where we can certainly accommodate them, it seems, based on, on the Biden administration's, administration's own admissions. But also, uh, what does it mean long term? Are, are they going to go back to their home countries? Are they going to stay here? Um, we know that the, the administration wants to make them citizens. Uh, in the long run. And I think that, uh, as you referred to earlier in a question about redistricting, yeah, that would have significant political implications, particularly if a law like or a bill like H.R. 1 becomes law, which would uh, perhaps give them an easier opportunity to vote in our elections, even if they're not citizens. Mm-hmm. Rob Louis, my guest, he's is the executive editor at The Daily Signal, and I highly recommend you head over there right now, dailysignal.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about a video that's up over there. By North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, he gave a eloquent uh, speech to the House Judiciary Committee during a hearing Thursday on voting rights. It is powerful. Uh, we'll take a short break and be right back with Rob. Back with Rob Bluey, executive editor at The Daily Signal. And the way I get my Tuesday started, I'm so grateful for him and his work at The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com. A very powerful uh, video up at dailysignal.com, Rob, by the Honorable Mark Robinson, the North Carolina Lieutenant Governor. Um, do talk about that. Yes, this is probably one of the best uh, examples, uh, testimonials, Bill, that I have heard from an individual talking about election integrity and the importance of having an identification when you show up to vote. And yes, it is by uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson of North Carolina, a black man who grew up in a poor family, uh, one, of, uh, one of 10 children uh, mm-hmm. who endured hardships uh, growing up as a child, overcame them, and is now um, the second most powerful person in the, in the state of North Carolina. And he was testifying about uh, these issues that we have heard so much about in the last couple of months, uh, the Georgia election law, the um, H.R. 1 legislation here in the U.S. Congress, and all of the various issues that are related to that. And he specifically talked about the issue of voter ID. You and I have talked about this. I know you've talked to my colleague yeah, at the Heritage Foundation, Hans Ansvakovsky, about this. Yes. And I thought that it was really so powerful and really would encourage your listeners to, to watch his video or read his testimony because he refers to things in, uh, in the testimony like – 
the famous protest that took place at the Woolworth counter in Greensboro, North mm-hmm. Carolina, and he talks about um, how how HR one is really a power grab on the part of Democrats to rewrite the Constitution and take away power from states and give it to to federal officials. And he also talks about importantly uh, the the role that the Democrats in Washington are trying to play to ban states from implementing voter ID laws. And I think that when you look at the arguments that are being made and the suggestions on the part of some uh, politicians that it is a racist move to have voter ID, to have a black man stand up and say, no, it is not, and it is something that we need to do to protect the integrity of the right to vote. I just think it's uh, it's just a powerful testimonial. So we have uh, we've seen polling that suggests that it's it's not racist. Uh, minorities don't view voter ID in that way. Uh, states have provided many ways to get a free ID if you don't have a driver's license. So there's really you know, no opportunity. And then to look at the list, Bill, of the things that you need an ID for, and uh, and and it's not just you know buying alcohol or um, getting on an airplane or those things that, you know, are commonly suggested, even to get into a building here in Washington, D.C., a building, by the way, that's maintained by the Biden administration, which purportedly is against voter ID. So you can't get into a federal building uh, without an ID. <laughs> they want to make sure that uh, you uh, you are prohibited from having one when it comes to, to voting. So I, uh, I just don't understand it. I think that at a time when so many Americans have doubts about the integrity of our elections, we need to be doing everything to restore that confidence and giving states the opportunity to do that without the federal government dictating other rules um, is so important. And so I really hope that uh, we can keep our attention and focus on this. The good news is, Bill, I know we've been talking to your, to your audience about H1 and S1, which is otherwise known as the For the People Act. Um, mm-hmm. Senator, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said over the weekend that it's now looking like that they won't even address that legislation in the Senate until sometime later this summer. That seems to indicate that they're having trouble getting through uh, the Senate, and I think that that's uh, good news on, on behalf of the American people, that even some Democrats of his own party are having second doubts about making some of these radical changes to our election system, which have worked fairly well uh, for most of this country's history. Yeah. I watched his video and read the transcript, and I just want to read a quick paragraph here. Am I to believe that black Americans who have overcome the atrocities of slavery, who were victorious in the civil rights movement, and now sit in the highest levels of this government, could not figure out how to get a free ID to secure their votes? That they need to be coddled by politicians because they don't think we can figure out how to make our voices heard? Are you kidding me? The notion that people must be protected from a free ID to secure their votes is not just insane, it's insulting. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Comment closed. Yes, exactly. He said he said it very well, and which is why I think so many people are looking uh, to him for, for leadership. He's somebody who kind of came out of nowhere. Again, this is the lieutenant governor of North Carolina. I'm sure that very, very few of your listeners have probably even heard of him, because unlike, uh, you know, so many others in, in the Democratic Party who get get attention, uh, you know, he, here he is, a black Republican who won statewide office uh, with little fanfare and is now uh, making a name for himself by, by speaking out on, on these issues. And so uh, I hope he continues to do so. I, um, I, I hope that it's a situation where he will find uh, that he has some success in convincing people that there is a better way. Mm-hmm. Rob, talk about some of the wealthiest cities in some of the bluest states that got quite a windfall from the COVID-19 stimulus. I like Beverly Hills, well, for example. How about that? <laughs> you 
know, it, it seems that this this story uh, never never goes away. I mean, time <laughs> and time again, whether it's it's these wealthy cities or wealthy individuals. I remember years ago, Bill, it was um, individuals who benefited, I think, from a farm bill uh, who were, were millionaires and, you know, were collecting, uh, you know, <laughs> federal federal dollars, uh, which, which probably obviously could have been spent much better. But yes, Beverly Hills, which has a population of just about 35,000, got 6.3 million in federal tax dollars from the American Rescue Plan. Uh, that's, of course, the, uh, the President Biden's uh, legislation. And, uh, and you know, you look at other places like Greenwich, Connecticut, of course, uh, not necessarily a, a, a locality that uh, is, <laughs> is, is faring uh, in, in a difficult position, $21 million. Um, and, uh, and a lot of this money is being spent on public schools. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that concerns me. I think it concerns a lot of others is the federal government's overreach, particularly into the education system. For, for many years, the federal government kept its hands out of our local schools. They were controlled at a local level by school boards, uh, states and local communities made those decisions. But as more federal dollars flow in, you can bet that there will be strings attached to that and the federal government will start to demand certain things for people who accept that money. That's why you have some colleges, some Christian colleges or conservative-leaning colleges that refuse to take any federal money uh, for, for higher education purposes. And I think that that's uh, very noble of them because they just don't want that attachment. But yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, Some of the other places, uh, Key West, Florida, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Oyster Bay, New York. The list goes on and on. And uh, again, you visit DailySignal.com to get the full list of all these wealthy cities that uh, that have reaped this big windfall. It is just remarkable. And it's one of the reasons why we need to be uh, paying much more close attention to this legislation as it's making its way through Congress and why I think it's time to put a pause on some of the uh, the big spending plans that are coming out of uh, out of the White House and, uh, and, and the U.S. Congress. Yeah. Rob, how are conservatives doing on media platforms run mostly by the left? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, we, uh, we've we seen certain platforms uh, obviously take action against our former president, Donald Trump, uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, Twitter. Um, you know, they have permanently banned the president. Now, Facebook is, is undergoing review. We should know soon whether or not the oversight board, which reviews such decisions, overturns uh, Facebook's uh, you know, ruling that, uh, that President Trump has banned. But uh, the one that uh, I think you're referring to is, uh, is, is an effort on the part of James O'Keefe, who's, of course, with Project Veritas. He was permanently suspended from Twitter for content that he posted, an undercover video that showed a CNN staffer admitting that the network was biased against conservatives. And what happens as a result of him producing this undercover video? He himself is banned, which would suggest bias on the part of Twitter. Uh, Twitter has become increasingly aggressive. We've had our own staff uh, at the Heritage Foundation who found themselves uh, temporarily suspended for content that they've posted. Um, We at the Daily Signal have had content, video content removed uh, from YouTube and uh, and Bill, it is uh, it, it is troubling. Now it's it's good news to hear that the plat- platform Parler is is back on the App Store, and they were able to work out an agreement with with Apple to uh, to figure out um, how to do that. But I think increasingly conservatives and Christians find themselves in a situation that uh, they um, you know uh, is untenable. And Live Action, which is a prominent pro life organization, is just another example 
uh, that they were banned from Pinterest of all places. And so it's, um, it's even the platforms that you wouldn't think would be engaging in this type of censorship that have, uh, have proven to be troublesome for, for Christian and conservative groups that want to have a message that I think uh, differs probably from, again, in this case, not Hollywood values, but Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley values and that woke culture of California. Mm-hmm. Rob, thanks again for being on the show today. I always love talking to you, and I appreciate you and your work. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, Bill. Have a great week. Thanks. Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Greg Borgon is going to continue his uh, study on the existence of evil. God did not create evil, but he allows it. We'll continue our discussion with Dr. Greg Borgon in just a minute. Right. I'm looking forward to getting back into this discussion. I love part twos, and we've got one coming up today with <laughs> Dr. Greg Borgon. We started his teaching last time he was in studio with me uh, on the on evil. Did God create evil? No, he didn't, but he allows it. And we're going to continue our discussion on that. Part two, Greg, welcome to the show. It's good to be back, but we can't talk about it. It's been banned on Twitter and Facebook, Bill. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> so we're in trouble. <laughs> Well, today we'll uh, pick up on the conversation, as you had mentioned, we started a couple of weeks ago regarding the existence of evil. We addressed initially several questions in our uh, beginning discussion, and let me just recap those very quickly, and then we'll move into the questions that we haven't answered. First of all, what is the definition of evil? We concluded that evil is the absence of good. It's actually the lack or privation of a good thing. Uh, The other question we addressed, the second question was, did God create evil? The short answer, of course, is no, but he allows it as a consequence of not choosing good. So the next question is, why does God allow evil? The exercise of free choice brings consequences, so we must accept responsibility for our actions. And he doesn't want robots as followers. What he wants are people to be able to make choices hopefully, to honor him and to honor what um, the Bible talks about and and the authority of the Bible, because he knows that's best for our life. But if we choose to make a decision otherwise, then there are consequences to those decisions. The fourth question we addressed, Bill, was does evil exist apart from the human soul? Uh, We determined that evil is not a virus kind of hanging in the air that you catch by going through it like a cloud, Uh, It can only exist and be viable when it's embodied in the soul of every created being, including angels. And Mm. then the final question that we addressed uh, two weeks ago is evil increasing in the world. Well, given the fact that sin and evil demands a host, then it stands to reason that as the population of humanity grows, so does the expanse of evil. So that's where we kind of left off, Bill. Yeah, and just uh, in the last half hour, my guest Rob Bluey was talking about the results of the census. So, yeah, our population has grown. So exponentially, we would say that there's very much the likelihood that there's going to be more evil. Yeah, especially when it's concentrated in urban centers, uh, just Mm -hmm. much like the Tower of Babel and and one of the reasons why I believe God dispersed us. 
All right, let's go ahead and move into the questions we didn't get a chance to address last time, if that's okay. Um, That'd be great. Let's uh, talk about, first of all, are the depths of depravity reaching new lows today? Now, you've got to think about that for a minute, Bill. Are the depths of depravity reaching new lows today? So are we seeing, in other words, uh, new expressions of depravity that we haven't seen in the past? Well, the depths of depravity have already been reached. Take a look at what depravities were engaged in in the Old Testament, for example. For instance, human sacrifice was part of the whole worship of Moloch, a Canaanite god, according to Leviticus 18. Uh, according to biblical research, Moloch worship, uh, worship included child sacrifice or passing children, they said, through the fire. It's believed that the idols of Moloch were um, uh, giant uh, metal statues of a man with a bull's head. Each image had a hole in the abdomen and possibly outstretched arms that made kind of a ramp to that hole. A fire was lit in it or around the statue. Babies were placed in the statue's arms or directly in the hole. When couples sacrificed their firstborn, they believed that Moloch would ensure financial prosperity for the family and future children. Now, it may seem like depravity has found new depths today. I mean, you can't go any more depraved than that, wouldn't you agree, Bill? No, that's, that is, we've reached it. <laughs> but I'd suggest that examples of depravity are more widely known because our communication channels today make it more possible to, to hear about such depravity more widely. The intensity and depth haven't changed much over the years. Maybe, though, more novel ways have been created to exercise these atrocities. So we're not seeing any deeper depravity. We may just be seeing more um, creative uh, examples of it and practices of it today. So the next question uh, we wanted to address, um, is the enemy upping his game? In other words, Mm -hmm. is he intensifying his influence? One can easily conclude that the efforts of the evil one and his minions are increasing in intensity that he's really has upped his game one scholar suggested that uh, we're living in the new dark age the world is getting darker the liberal notion that the world is getting better has been pretty much discredited given what's happened across the globe so we're hurtling to a climatic and an end so graphically described in scripture especially in the book of revelation the book of daniel and certainly in matthew It may not happen in yours or my lifetime, yet the enemy sees it coming. His desire is to take as many with him as possible. His plan, of course, is to discredit God through the lives of those who claim to know Christ but live hypocritical and incongruous lives in opposition to what they say they believe. In essence, it's breaking the commandment that says don't take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, when we live a life, Bill, incongruous with what we say we believe— or in opposition to what we know to be the truth, we're really taking God's name in vain. We always think that command has just had to do with swearing, but it's much larger than that. When you claim the name, God expects you to get into the game. And if you don't, well, then you're taking his name in vain. Satan uh, is called, first of all, the great opposer and adversary of, of our King Jesus Christ. He's the prince of this earthly world. He's called the tempter in First Thessalonians, Beelzebub in Matthew, the wicked one again in Matthew, the ruler of this world in John, the god of this age in Second Corinthians, Belial in Second Corinthians also, 
the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians and the accuser of the brother in Revelation. So Satan's influence in worldly affairs is also clearly revealed. His various titles kind of, Bill, reflect his control of the world system, a ruler of this world, the god of this age, and the prince of the power of the air. The Bible declares in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But here's the point. He might have temporary sway, but his day is coming and has already been declared and set. Evil will not ultimately triumph. God will. Whose side will you be on is the question we really need to answer, Bill. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to the next one is, and this is, this is important because it kind of gives some hope to all the preceding questions that we've addressed. What is the biblical solution to the problem of evil? So the following remarks that I'm going to share are, are excerpted from um, an article in uh, GodQuestions.org in response to this question, really. I share it uh, verbatim simply because it succinctly states the solution to the problem of evil. The findings of biblical scholars and theologians substantiated by Scripture, of course, are, are summarized um, in these words that are to follow. Now, according to the Bible... The experience of evil is something God understands and acknowledges. So God's willingness to grant us the freedom of making our own choices also allows for the possibility of moral evil. Moral evil leads to physical evil. Even so, God has always acted to soften the blows that evil and suffering land on humanity. He also provided the one and only means to make all wrongs right. One day, God's plan to defeat and destroy evil will be fully complete. Now, that's something we're celebrating, Bill. It sure is. Especially when you take a look at all that's happening today in the world around us, and most immediate examples being here in our own Twin Cities. and, and, uh, And so it's easy to go ahead and hunker down and want to climb into a fetal position and just wait for Christ to come. But the fact of the matter is, is that we already know how it's going to end. We already mm-hmm. know that evil is going to be conquered. And right now, God is giving every human being an opportunity to respond to his gospel in the toleration of evil to the point of making sure each person has this opportunity to respond to his grace and mercy. And, and so kind of holding back in some respects uh, the huge waves of evil that are sweeping over us in anticipation of getting some of us to, and convincing some of us to climb into the boat of safety, to go to safety. Um, but ultimately, evil is going to be defeated. That's good news. That's a, it's outstanding news. Thank you for that. Great now the, reminder. Yeah. Now, the Bible makes it clear that evil is something God neither intended nor created. You know, answering some of these questions that we've been talking about, Bill addressed that. Rather, moral evil is, an, is a necessary possibility. It's, it's something that we wish wasn't possible, but it's a necessary possibility if we're to express free will. If we are truly free, then we're free to choose something other than God's will. That is, we can choose moral evil. Scripture points out that there are consequences for defying the will of God, personal consequences, communal consequences, physical consequences, and spiritual consequences— Today, we don't want to embrace the consequences of our decisions. If we make a bad decision, we push back on 
having to deal with any of the consequences of those poor decisions, but they're there. The same thing, you know, when we, we sin before God, there are consequences to our sin, even though God's forgiveness is available to us should we embrace it. We still live with some of the consequences. Now, taken together, Scripture shows us that physical evils like sickness and famine and war and and even death are the result of moral evil. And moral evil is something human beings are all responsible for on a personal and communal level. We suffer because of our own sins at times. Other times we suffer because of the sins of others. In some situations, we suffer from simple cause and effect, uh, and we sometimes suffer for a special purpose in order to bring hope or help or a warning to others. Sometimes God allows us, in other words, to go through crises because he knows as he's walking with us that we're going to rise above it, and since we've experienced it, we're in the best position to help other people who may be uh, almost ready to go through the same thing. So sometimes God allows that as a means for us to minister on a very deep level. Now, again, um, the Bible uh, frames the problem of evil by keeping it in its proper context. Evil is meaningless without something to compare it to. For comparison, we have the original creation of God called very good, according to Genesis 131. We have the standard of goodness in God himself, and we have an explanation for the various causes of evil and and suffering. We see that this physical world is not all there is, nor is this mortal life all we have been made for. We can experience physical struggles such as mourning and persecution, according to Matthew 5, while looking to a greater, more permanent state of being blessed. So, of course, uh, clearly framing what evil is and why we experience is not the same as resolving the problem of evil. However, even in the framing of evil in the context of Christian theology uh, shows that our experience of evil and suffering is not incompatible with God's existence. So amplifying this proof is how the Bible goes beyond accurately describing everything to revealing God's action to remedy it. So in other words, God pulls no punches. He he shows us the the darkness of sin and and the Mm -hmm. consequences of it, and he doesn't hold it back. He's not trying to go ahead and suppress it. He wants us to see what those consequences are. So Scripture shows that God did not create evil and does not promote it, Rather, it describes God's actions in combating it. Wow. Greg, let me take a little break here. Sure. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're continuing our, our teaching on the existence of evil. We'll be right back.
back on too long. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. And during the break, it gave me a couple of minutes, Greg, to think about something that you said earlier. Sure. That was about if we're truly free, we're free to choose something other than God's will. That is, we can choose moral evil. Now, we really can't choose moral evil until we become born again. Does that sound fair? No, we we can choose moral evil as a as a, a human being because you know when we talked about two weeks ago, we're all created in the image of God, which means that we have within our person vestiges of that image that, of course, have been marred with with sin over time, and so all humanity, even those that don't know Christ, have been given this amazing gift called free will, so they can choose evil. They have very little to compare it to, oftentimes, mm-hmm. unless it's a standard that they grew up with, unless it's uh, something that their family has taught them, or maybe a brief exposure to the Bible or church for a short period of time in their life, or some well-meaning friend telling them, hey, what you're doing is wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like C.S. Lewis said one time, he says, people know instinctively that if I'm eating an orange and somebody takes a piece of my orange that they violated uh, me and that it's wrong to take what doesn't belong to them. <laughs> and so we have intrinsically within us the sense, and, and the Bible calls it the conscience, that really is a, a barometer or a meter, even though that conscience can be calcified, um, mm-hmm. but it's a barometer or a meter that says, you know what, if we choose this, there are consequences to it. But because of our desire to live independent from God, we'd rather choose, in many cases, the evil rather than the good. Is that because God has written on our heart right and wrong, and we're just choosing wrong? Absolutely. I, Absolutely. I, I think of that passage in Second Timothy 2 that says, uh, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Yeah, powerful so passage. Me, yeah, where are they choosing evil at that point? versus they are being taken captive by Satan to do his will. Well, it's not that they're unable to go ahead and choose the better of the two choices. Uh, for instance, it's the devil, or it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world, it says in Scripture, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So even if our conscience has been calcified, or even if there's a, uh, a callus around it and has been desensitized to evil, um, the Holy Spirit can convict us and, and quicken us and remind us. I mean, otherwise, how could we be brought to repentance? It is true, Bill, that apart from Jesus Christ, we are incapable of living a holy life. Mm-hmm. In other words, biblical scholars call it uh, depravity. I mean, that we're born with a sinful nature, and apart from God interceding, we are incapable of, of of paying the the price that's necessary to remove that from our very soul and being. So that maybe is getting to the point of what you're addressing in that a, a man, in essence, is what you're saying, is incapable of choosing what is good. Um, but they can, because of the image of God in us, uh, it can flare up. Uh, the, the embers that have been buried underneath the ashes of all the poor decisions in our life is still an ember, that can be built up again when the fresh breath of the Spirit blows over it and it comes up into a flame again, and all of a sudden we're resensitized, even for a moment, to understand Mm -hmm. that we need a Savior. All right, Greg, let's get back to how Scripture resolves the problem of evil. Yep. God limits um, the impact of evil. He warns us of the dangers of evil. He acts to stop the spread of evil. 
He gives us an escape from evil and will eventually defeat evil forever. Another part of the good news. The Bible explains that God has acted to limit the impact of evil. In other words, he's given us clear instructions to avoid being evil. God has also made spiritual power available for those who want to be freed from the power of evil. In other words, the Holy Spirit, once we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, takes up permanent dwelling in our soul and quickens us. And a number of things happen at the moment of conversion, of regeneration, given a new heart, what you were referring to, Bill. And so we are quickened, and the conscience again is resensitized uh, to uh, God's will for our life. So, and from the very beginning, God set in motion a plan to make all wrongs right and end our experience of evil and suffering. So the existence of evil is often presented as an enormous problem for those who believe in God, mostly because of various false dichotomies. God must, it is assumed, disallow all evil, or he is evil himself. God must immediately punish all evildoers and never trouble those who are innocent, or he is assumed not to be omnipotent or all-powerful. In reality, though, these assumptions miss the actual means by which Scripture resolves the problem of evil. As we've seen, the Bible acknowledges evil. It correctly frames it. In other words, it clears up our misperceptions about it and says this is what it is. It shows how God opposes it. Most importantly, though, Scripture explains how the existence of the Christian God defeats the problem of evil. And all of this is supported by multiple passages in Scripture, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, uh, the Gospels, as well as in, um, in the epistles. So rather than creating us as amoral robots or dooming mankind for our sin or condoning our sin by leaving it unresolved, God chose the one and only way to settle the problem. He created us with the freedom to choose our actions and then extended forgiveness to us. Forgiveness is the Christian answer to the problem of evil. Forgiveness is different um, from condemnation. It releases the condemned from punishment. So forgiveness is also different from excusing evil. It acknowledges that there is wrong to be made right. So the basis of our forgiveness, the cross is the intersection of God's perfect moral character, love, and omnipotence. Since he chose to take our penalty upon himself, all suffering and evil can be overcome. So according to the Bible, the evil we experience in this life has already been defeated, and everyone has access to that victory. Except that if we don't receive Christ, Bill, we're not appropriating what's already been done and and done for us well over 2,000 years ago. Now, these two passages that I'm about to read should give our listeners some hope. First of all, John three sixteen through 21. Everyone's familiar with that first verse, but maybe not the rest of the passage, or as familiar with the rest of the passage. So if, let me just read that, what the Bible says here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes, that is, trust in, relies on, and cling to him for all they know him to be, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already 
because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Scary thought. But, But whoever lives by the truth, according to this passage, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And then finally in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So taken as a whole bill as it's intended, the Bible describes evil as something God allowed but never condoned for the sake of our free will. All through history, God's taken steps to limit the influence of evil. And most importantly, God himself took the consequences of our sin so every person can have access to the forgiveness and salvation. As a result, all sin, evil, and suffering will someday be completely ended. Beyond the philosophical and theological aspects of this issue, Scripture in and of itself goes a long way to neutralizing the power of the problem of evil. Isn't that great news? No, that's fantastic. Greg, I so appreciate this teaching. You've done such a comprehensive job of giving us uh, scripture to look at, and you put it in context so beautifully. Thank you so much for this. Oh, you're more than welcome, Bill. My privilege. Yeah. Thank you so much. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. You can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg and his books and his teaching and his blog. And we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our study on the uh, end times with teacher Jeff Verdorn. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.